Psalm 1. Just by way of remembrance, the songs are songs. It's basically the Jewish hymn book of old, the Psaltery. And as we saw, the, that Psalms is not one book in 150 chapters. In fact, uh, it's divided by five different books or five scrolls. And, of course, we just started, so we're in book one, which is Psalm 1 through 41. And last week we looked at blessed is the man or blessed is the woman and what that means. Uh, we said that the word blessed means, oh, how happy. And it's not just a vague, general, subjective happiness. It comes from being in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We went to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we saw that in the nine times that Jesus used that phrase to begin that sermon, it was related to being right with God. And that's the only way that we can be, oh, how happy. And we look specifically in Psalm 1 and verse 1 uh, because there were some negative uh, commandments or negative connotations there. Uh, we're not supposed to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. We're not supposed to stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. If we follow after ungodly counsel, then it means that we're not heeding the godly counsel. Those two things cannot coexist at the same moment of time in the same person. They just cannot. And so if you want to be miserable, go after the flesh, the devil, and the world. Go after ungodly counsel. Go uh, after something other than the Word of God. Now today, I guess you could call this part two of the blessed man, but I want to look at delighting in the law of the Lord, and we're only really going to preach from verse 2, and then we're going to look at some other places. And I know that some of you intuitive folks, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, he preached one sermon in verse 1, <laughs> now he's preaching one sermon in verse 2, and I just want you to know that things will pick up, they will get better, but I was kind of curious, I'm kind of nerdy like that, so I did the math, and if I preached through all 150 psalms, one verse at a time, it would take me over 47 years. So, <laughs> business will pick up and we will go a little bit faster, okay? Because I would like for some of you to be alive by the time we get to the end of it, okay? I would be 84, so I might even not even make it. So, Psalm 1, let's read our text and then we'll get into the message today. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much today. God, we're so blessed. God, I'm just so grateful to be saved. I'm grateful to know Jesus Christ and the part of my sin. And I'm just so thankful for this church family, God, the unity, Lord, the joy that we share in Christ. There's so many differences represented in this room, and yet we're united 
around the cross of Christ and His great salvation. I just ask, Lord, that You would just forgive me where I might have failed You in my thoughts or my actions. And Lord, I know that we're ultimately forgiven only and solely because of Christ. But Lord, I, I know that in my feebleness, Lord, in my flesh is no good thing and there's nothing that I bring to the table this morning. I pray that You would just fill me Your Holy Spirit and God, You would work in our hearts that Christ would be magnified in all of the things of this earth, just like we sang about, would just fall to the wayside. And we give these things to You. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So we're looking at delighting in the law of the Lord this morning, or you could say the blessed man or woman, uh, part two. And so if we're talking about how to be happy, and he's told us about some things that we need to stay away from. In fact, I mentioned last week that Psalm 1 is different from any other psalm because in the ancient manuscripts, it's not actually called the first psalm. It's, it's called an introduction to the psalms. It gives us a lens by which to see the rest of the psalms with, and that is the Word of God. This is not simply a book of Jewish poetry. It's not uh, just simply... Uh, a book of, you know, good things to live by or, you know, good wisdom. It is the Word of God. And so when it tells us uh, how we can be, oh, how happy, and it tells us in the things that will bring us delight, I think we ought to pay attention, especially when it's in the very same psalm, and we're going to get to this in the coming weeks. Uh, it is contrasting the blessed life with a life of destruction. Well, I mean, this, this is a fork in the road, folks. This is really important. And we're going to choose which road we're going to walk down. We're, going to we're either going to take God at His Word, submit ourselves to Him and His Word, or we're going to do what we want to do. I mean, that's, no matter how that comes packaged, that's really what the choice is. And so what does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord, I've got two things that I really want to focus on this morning, and we will be going to other places because, simply because we're talking about the law of the Lord. We're talking about the Word of God, and so I want you to see from the Word of God what it has to say about the Word of God. But the first thing that we have to nail down this morning before we really get into application is the practical meaning. And what I mean by the practical meaning I mean, how would the Old Testament Jews have understood this phrase concerning the law of the Lord? Let's read these first two verses for context. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And so as I always tell you, uh, as you're reading the Bible, as you're uh, interpreting the Scriptures, you always have to ask the question, what would this have meant to the original audience? We know this is a Psalm of David uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, he is writing, and, and uh, this has been cherished and sung by these Old Testament Jews for centuries, for millennia. And so th this was prior to the New Testament. This was prior to the coming of uh, the Christ and the cross. And so how would they have understood this? Delight thy, uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day or night. Where the, the answer to this is very simple, but there are some layers to it. The law of the Lord to an Old Testament Jew 
is simply the five books of Moses, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So that's how they would have understood that. But here's what we have to get to, and here's where some of the layers come off. From our Western point of view, we hear the word law, and our mind automatically goes to a list of enforced rules, right? A list of do's and don'ts and punishments if we cross over the do's and don'ts. But that wasn't necessarily true of the Jews. Now, we understand that within the five books of Moses, we do have Leviticus. We do have the laws, uh, ceremonial law, moral law, civil law. It's there, but it's only a small part of the whole. And if that's all we think of, when we think about the law of the Lord, then we're going to miss the whole because we're focusing on the part. And I love what the Crossway Commentary said to this point. It said, since there are similarities between the wording here in Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3, and Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, the focus here is likely on the Mosaic law. The word law, however, for the English-speaking Christian reader, may conjure up a picture of rule-keeping by which a person merits his standing with God. But the Hebrew does not require such a picture. Rather, the Torah is a book of God's gracious initiative from beginning to end. It tells the story of the God who made the world, who never gave up on His creation even after human sin defiled it, and who called the family of Abraham to be His vehicle by which He brings this light to the whole of mankind. The laws and rules that we find in the Pentateuch serve to regulate and protect the life of God's people so that their community is a safe and healthy one. The piety and humanity of the members may flourish, and the corporate witness will attract the Gentiles to God's light. From its own perspective, the Pentateuch and the socio-religious system that is set up was a pure gift. (laughs) I love that. Now, we know that man has a way of messing up everything. And he messed up the reason that God gave us this law. Uh, Not only did they try to use the law as a means of personal salvation and holiness, uh, they added tradition to that list of rules, uh, even though they couldn't keep the law to begin with. Isn't that a great idea? Lord, I know I can't keep, I can't even memorize all 618 of these laws, much less do them, but I'm going to add even more rules so I can make myself even more holy. And the idea was kind of fencing in the table a little bit. The idea was, well, you know, people are always going to try to walk on the edge anyway. So if we just move the edge out, even if they come over a little bit, they're still okay. That's, that's just not right thinking. I'm being G-rated about this. It's just not right thinking. But that's what they did. So the law of the Lord to a Jew would have been a specific portion of the Word of God, the writings of Moses. Let's keep this in mind as we move forward. Certainly we're not Old Testament Jews today. So what does this mean for us as far as application? Well, we saw the practical meaning. What about number two, the personal meaning? Verse two again. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth He meditate day and night. Now, this is not, this is not getting you know, cross-legged somewhere and putting our fingers together and you know, humming. This is not what He's talking. In fact. This word meditation, again, talking about how the Jews would have understood this, in that day, it was a fairly common practice. If somebody was reading the Old Testament Scriptures, they would read them aloud quietly. 
That was called meditation. And so it still goes back to the Word of God itself. But how does this apply to us? Let's look at the personal meaning. Um, As New Testament Christians, how can we delight in the law of the Lord? Well, it's pretty simple. And this this is the gist of everything that we're going to talk about this morning. Because we not only see the law, but all of Scripture and how it points to Christ and the redemption of His people. And we'll get back, on, back to this here in just a minute. But let me say this. I love the Word of God. I have no qualms about saying that. I love the Word of God because I love the God of the Word. Now, I have been accused in the past of worshiping a book. And that's a straw man simply because I don't worship the book, but I sure do worship the one that gave us the book. And I'm going to tell you why that's a straw man. Don't ever let anybody paint you in a corner with that. Because think about it like this. If you had a spouse or a child or a loved one, and maybe they had to go off to a far country for a long, just unknown, undisclosed period of time, and the only means they had of communicating with you was love letters. And as you got those handwritten letters in the mail, you'd pull them out, you'd read them slowly, You'd mull over them. You would read them again and over. You would hang on every word. You might even smell it to see if their scent was on it. You might carry it around with you. You might come back before you get the next letter and read it again because it's precious, it's valuable, and nobody would accuse you of worshiping that letter. This is God's love letter to all humanity. And I love it. I don't worship the book, but I sure sure do worship the one that wrote it to us. Love the Word of God. And so, it's, it's a book all about Jesus Christ. We're going to see that. In fact, the Word of God has a lot to say about the Word of God. Uh, just, to, just to shoot some stuff off at you, I'm going to go fast this morning. You may want to just jot down the reference and go back later and look at it. But the longest of all the Psalms is Psalm 119. We'll be there in about 30 years. But <laughs> <laughs> Psalm 119 has 176 verses, and every single one of them is magnifying the Word of God. I tell you what, a good study, if you want to check this out, go look at Psalm 119 and take note of how many different terms and phrases is used for the Word of God. The law of God, the precepts, the statute. I mean, I think it's about eight or nine different terms it uses for the Word of God. And we'll certainly do that when we get there. But... The whole thing magnifies the Word of God. Psalm 138 and verse 2 said, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. John 17 verse 17, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer to God the Father, sanctify them, talking about believers, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 2 Timothy 3, verses 17 and 18. It said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration comes from the Greek word theonoustos. It literally means the breath of God or breathed out by God. This is God's word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished 
unto all good works. Uh, somebody's once said, uh, once said that, you know, doctrine is teaching, uh, reproof is what's wrong, correction is what is right, and instruction in righteousness is how to get it right. I like that. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick. That word quick means living. The word of God is alive. Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Your Bible is alive and it knows you. That's why James calls it the mirror of the soul. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror to see what kind of imperfections have somehow, you know, somehow that cow that walked into your room in the middle of the night and, you know, <laughs> licked on the side of your head, you, you look for those imperfections so you can do something about it. The Word of God is the mirror to the soul. You come to the Word of God to find out the imperfections on the inside and say, God, by your grace, would you forgive me and help me to get this right? It's the mirror to the soul. Now, kind of connecting the first and second point here, if we were to sit down and have a conversation with a Jew who really knows their Old Testament, we would have a lot to talk about because we know the same stories. It would really be uncanny. I've actually had conversations with Jews. And one thing I really love is if you come in contact with some Messianic Jews, I've met some Messianic Jews. They believe just like we do. The same exact, I'm talking about the same exact things we do. There is no difference, except that ethnically, their heritage is Jewish. They are Jews. And, but uh, he was quick to correct me. He said, I, he said, I am a completed Jew. It makes sense. It's a Jew that got it, was able to connect the dots, and they recognize, hey, that Old Testament... It was talking about Jesus the whole time. We're about to get into that here in a minute. Uh, but we would have some great conversations, but however, as New Testament Christians, we have a much more complete view of what God is revealing in these texts. For example, uh, if we're just dealing with the law of Moses, if we're just dealing with the five books of the Pentateuch, you know, we see Christ in Genesis. We see Him as Creator. Uh, we find that in the book of John, chapter 1. We've already seen that in our John study, how all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We see Him... In fact, I'm going to turn anyway. I, I, I wasn't going to turn here, but I'm going to. Y'all will be here till I'm done anyway. So I want you to see this. Go to Genesis 3. Not only do we see him as creator, but we see him as the seed of the woman. Genesis 3 and verse 15. Adam and Eve ascend at this point. God is issuing out judgment. And then he shifts gears here. Genesis 3 may be the saddest, happiest text in all the Bible. The one in which man fell, there was a promise of a, of a last Adam that was going to redeem it. Um, I'll just begin in verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, that separation, division, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, 
and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the, the proto-evangelion or the first good news. This is the first gospel mention in the Bible. In Genesis 3, Christ is the seed of the woman. He, his heel was bruised on the cross, but by that cross he would crush the head of the serpent, the head of Satan. And so what a, what a marvelous promise. And so we see him as the seed of the woman. We see Christ as the last Adam, who would redeem what the first Adam lost. We find in Genesis that Christ is the one who covenanted with Abraham, the covenant of promise uh, in which salvation would come. Uh, we see him as the Savior of the world in, the, in Joseph, who is a historical figure, but he's also a type of Christ. I mean, there's so many comparisons we could make. I think about uh, both Joseph and Christ. They were a beloved son of the Father. They were both betrayed by their brethren, which were the, end up being the Jews. They were both sold for the price of a slave. They were wrongfully accused. And through a miracle, God exalted them from a low place to a high place. I mean, we could just keep on going and going with that. But we see Christ in that. That delights me. What about you? We're talking about being delighted in the Word of God and the law of God. That excites me. We see Him in Exodus uh, as the new and greater Moses. We've seen that in John. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's in the prologue of John. Uh, what Moses couldn't, Moses couldn't get to the promised land because even he broke the law, didn't he? Christ succeeded. Adam failed. Christ succeeded. Do you all see in this theme? We also see him in Exodus as the Passover lamb that frees us from the bonds of sin and Satan. What a comparison. The, the Israelites slayed that spotless, uh, blemishless lamb, and they, they spread the door out of the doorpost, and the death angel would pass by. Uh, what a great picture of Christ. In fact, Christ was crucified on the Passover. It's amazing how that worked out. It just so happened that it didn't happen any of the other 364 days. It's almost like it was planned or something, like it was divinely ordained and decreed. And uh, he's, our, he's our Passover lamb. We see him in Leviticus, where Christ is both the sacrifice and the priest. He is also the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. Christ said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. The book of Hebrews is all about this theme of greater things. That's why we don't need a priest anymore. Christ is our great high priest. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't need a temple. That's why the temple was destroyed, just like Jesus said it would be. And there's never been in history such a thing as a Christian temple. The believers are the temple. We're, Christ indwells us by the person of His Holy Spirit. Uh, that's why we're not sacrificing animals, because He's the ultimate sacrifice. Those things were just shadows. They were just pictures of the real thing that's come. And now that the real thing has come, we don't need the shadows. Christ made one sacrifice for sin forever and sat down at the right hand of God. Friend, that's victory. <laughs> Mission accomplished. We see Him uh, as our sacrificed in priests and fulfilling the law in Leviticus. Numbers. We see Christ as the brazen serpent who is lifted up in the wilderness. John 3 talked about that. Uh, even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and they could be healed of those uh, venomous snakes if they were bitten. That was the judgment of God on those people. Just like sin is a result of what we've done. 
And we've all been bitten by the serpent of sin. But he said, if I be lifted up, he said, withdraw men unto me, and we can look to him and be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We see Christ in Deuteronomy as that great prophet that should come. Again, a greater than Moses. That stuff delights me. I'm delighted by that. And for those who might say, well, you know, that's pretty anachronistic. You're just taking what you already believe and kind of just reading it backwards. Well, okay. I want to go through I want to go to a few places because I want to I want to take a minute to connect the overall theme in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, it is hand in glove. And so we're going to go just a few places and we'll be done. But let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24. Now, in Luke 24, this is after the resurrection of Christ. He is walking the earth for 40 days. And on the road to Emmaus, he comes alongside these two disciples. Not not some of the original disciples, but just some disciples of his. But they don't recognize him. Somehow he's managed to hidden hidden his identity. And uh, I just love this. Uh, and here's the conversation. Basically, they tell Jesus, uh, or he, this is my paraphrase, He comes up to him, basically asks him, why the long faces? And he's like, they're like, basically, where have you been? Have you not heard of Jesus been crucified? We thought He was the chosen. We thought He was the Redeemer. We thought He was the King of Israel. And uh, verse 25, Christ says to him, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Do you see how Christ is pointing to the Old Testament Scriptures as an authority. And he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses, there's the law of the Lord that we've been talking about this morning. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. It's all about Jesus. Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Christ and the redemption of His people. This is how He preached uh, to these Jewish converts here. Verse 28, And they drew nigh to the village, whither they went, and He made as though He would have gone further. But they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us. Boy, I would have to. (laughs) Boy, if I was standing there hearing the incarnate Word, preaching the Word, I'd have never let Him go. And um, they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he said it meet with them, that he took bread and blessed it, and brake it and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. This is a whole other sermon for another day, but I just want to point this out. I hope you understand that truth is never discovered. It's always revealed. They were sitting there the whole time talking with the resurrected Christ and he was sitting at the table with them. And it wasn't until he opened their eyes that they saw that. Truth is never discovered. It's always revealed, but it's revealed by digging into the Word of God and God flipping the light switch on. It's that important. And in verse 32, And they said one to another, "Did Did not our hearts burn within us. I think they were delighting in the law of the Lord, don't you think? Did not our heart burn within us while He taught with us by the way and while He opened to us the Scriptures? How beautiful is that? 
They delighted in the law of the Lord. Their hearts burn within them as he opened the scriptures to them. But Christ, this is what we have to get, Christ viewed the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative. And it wasn't just the law of Moses. He mentioned all the prophets, but he goes on, and since we're here, we can read it. He goes on in the same chapter when he's talking to his disciples. And in um, verse, uh, down in verse 44, he said, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. That's every genre of Old Testament book. He said Genesis, I mean, Genesis all the way through Malachi. He's talking about me. It was all written about me. I love that. Man. I love that. And we see a great example of this. Let's go ahead and let's look at it. Just a couple of more places and we'll be done. I'm not running too late today. Let's go to John 8. We see Jesus himself do this even to a hostile crowd. John chapter 8 and verse 56, he's having a debate with these Pharisees, these Jews. And in verse 56... He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Jesus said, I know Abraham. I've seen Abraham. I've talked with him. And here's their response. The Jews said unto him, thou art not yet fifty years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. He literally said, not only have I met Abraham, I was actually the God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Even using the covenant name, I am. No wonder they wanted to kill him. And for those, that, we're going to talk about this in depth tonight in our John study. For those that say that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God, they have never read the Gospel of John. By the way, when they took up stones to kill him, the Jews had no problem understanding what he was saying. And Jesus didn't try to correct them either. I mean, if somebody's trying to murder you for something, for misunderstanding something you've said, I know what I'm doing. Hey, fellas, time out, pig misunderstanding here. He didn't do that because they totally got the memo. But you see how he's referring back? It's all about me. He ref that was from Exodus 3 that he quoted. And so, wow, what an amazing statement. Uh, but so I, I think you're getting the picture here. But one more thing I want to deal with before we close this morning. What about the New Testament? You know, we've certainly seen Jesus consider the Old Testament. I mean, we see over and over and over, even when Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness to try to tempt him, what did he do? It is written. It is written. It is written. He's going back to the Old Testament Scriptures. You look at the book of Acts, and whenever the... Whenever the apostles were dealing with the Jews, they preached Christ out of the Old Testament. It happened over and over and over again. Peter did it. Stephen did it. Paul did it. That's what they did. But what about the New Testament? How can we say that the New Testament is equally as authoritative as the Old Testament? I mean, I could, I could go a long time on this, but I'll just give you the cliff notes. I, I would say, first of all, simply because of what the Old Testament says, 
about the New Testament events. I mean, there's over 1,800 prophecies in the Old Testament, most of which are fulfilled in the New Testament, some of which yet to be fulfilled, but they will. Christ Himself fulfilled over 320 prophecies by Himself. And the New Testament is a recording of that. Someone has once said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so the whole time, the Old Testament is pointing to the New Testament. All the time, all the time, all the time. But then the New Testament, it's pointing back hand in glove to the Old Testament. It's just too unified not to be as authoritative. But then another thing here, and man, this is so important here. Let's go to John 14. We're right there close anyway. Let's go to John 14. Verse 22, Christ is coming closer to His crucifixion. He's giving His uh, disciples here some instruction. And He's talking about the comfort that will come after He's ascended. They don't know that's what He's talking about, but that's what He's talking about. The promise of the comforter when He's ascended. And how He would lead us into all truth. And then He gets specific about what that looks like. And in verse 22, uh, Judas saith unto him, Not Iscariot. Now, I, I can't read this without pointing this out. This is hilarious. This is the first time... Now, this is one of his disciples. But this is the first time that he's ever quoted. He's not Peter, James, and John. He's not one of those more well-known disciples. This is the first time he, he really gets a serious mention. And th- it's the first time that he's got a quote here. And the only way we know him is not Iscariot. That's that not Iscariot guy. And as Judas said unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? This is one of the most important questions asked in the entire Bible. I tell you what, Judas didn't get much, but when he did, he hit a grand slam home run in the bottom of the night. Uh, he is literally asking us, Lord, when you're gone, how are you going to communicate with us? How are you going to reveal yourself to us? And Jesus answered that question. And here's what He said in verse 23. He, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. We need to underline, highlight, asterisk, circle that phrase right there. It's that important. If a man love me, he will keep my words. Let me ask you this. this is, the skeptics love to bring this up. They say, well, how do you even know what Jesus said? We don't have anything that Jesus actually wrote with His own hand. We have it because of the eyewitness accounts of the gospel writers and the apostles. That's how we have it. How do you know that? Well, let's keep reading. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me, keep not my sayings. There it is again, so there's no confusion. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost, He says that, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you, He's talking to His apostles, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. This is the clearest promise in all the Bible of the inspiration and preservation of the New Testament Scriptures. He says, the Holy Spirit 
will bring to your remembrance the things that I said and did when you were with me. That's why this is our authority. The writings of these apostles. Isn't that amazing? See, the church... uh, You know, obviously, these were not the only letters that were ever written during that time period. They're not even the only letters that were written by the apostles. But they understood that in order for it to be considered inspired Scripture, it had to have been written by an apostle or a close associate. There's very few exceptions to that rule. In fact, Mark, he was not one of the original apostles, but he was Peter's copyist. He was his amanuensis. And so he had first-hand account from Peter. And so in a very real sense, you, you might could call the Gospel of Mark the Gospel of Peter. And so uh, anybody that came afterwards, they never would have accepted that. It, just w- it would not have been accepted by the church at large. It certainly wasn't. Um, and in fact, here's another question I think we need to answer while we're on here. Um, we'll go one more place and I'm done. And, and I want to answer the question here. How do we know that the canon has been closed? Okay, Brother Brown, we've seen the Old Testament. We've seen the New Testament. How do we know it's closed? How do we know that somebody couldn't have come, come on at a later date or somebody couldn't uh, come forth as an apostle or a prophet today? Well, let's go to Revelation 22 and we're done. Revelation 22, verse 17. This is the end of all things. This is, you know, the Lord allowed John to see into the future all the way to the end uh, when the Lord makes everything right and takes back everything Adam lost. I mean, this is the end. This is, I mean, obviously, we continue on throughout eternity, but this is, this is how God closes that story, closes that loop. This is the happily ever after. <laughs> of Scripture. And in verse 17, he gives a final invitation. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. It's a final invitation. Why not? It's the closing of Scripture here. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Not just the book, but the prophecy of the book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now that's figurative language. We cannot lose our salvation, but this is not talking about a saved person. We just read Jesus said of his own mouth that if you love him, You'll keep His words. This is not somebody who is keeping the Word of God. It's somebody who's trying to change it and twist it, which is exactly what Satan does. Somebody is never more like Satan than when they twist the Word of God to fit their own agenda. And so not only does he give a a parting invitation, he gives a parting warning, and he says that if anybody changes the prophecy that covers When John wrote this all the way to the end, if you add or take away from that, you're in big trouble with God. We don't need any further Scripture. He gave us everything He wanted us to have from the apostles, which is who He said and how He said He would reveal Himself to us through their writings, through the Scriptures, the inspiration and preservation of the Word of God. That delights me, doesn't it, you? I'm delighted by that. We don't have to walk around confused. Oh, is this person really speaking for God? Is that person speaking for God? 
It's like the great Puritan John Owen said, if extra-biblical revelations agree with Scripture, they're needless, and if they disagree, they're false. I don't need to hear what you've got to say. I want to know what He has to say. That mean, I don't love you. I love your opinion. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm talking about somebody who is supposedly preaching or speaking for God. I, I, I preached at a church one time. In fact, I need to, I need to get a plaque. But I, I had somebody ask me to preach for them, and I got in the pulpit, and I had a plaque. It wasn't a sticker. It was in the pulpit. It said, Preach Jesus or Sit Down. And I thought, man, that's awesome. But man, how humbling was that for me? I need to preach Jesus or sit down. Amen. <laughs> I'm delighted by that. Oh, how happy is the man that delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now listen, I'm closing with this. this is, we're going to wrap it all up with this statement. The Scriptures become precious to us when we realize that the Bible isn't a book of fairy tales or myth or folklore. It's not just a boring list of rules and endless genealogies. It's not about your best life now. It's not just life tips. The Bible is not a life coach. It's not a therapist. It's not about a talking snake or a talking donkey. It's not about a man-eating fish. I believe all those things happen. I believe they're historical and factual, but it's not about that. It's not about tablets made of stone or chariots of fire or etc., etc. It's a book about a sovereign Redeemer who entered into His own creation through the womb of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for sinners, and rose from the dead, and now He has ascended to heaven is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He is actively ruling and reigning from on high and accomplishing His purposes in the world. <laughs> That's what the Bible's about. That's what it's about. It's all about Jesus. Listen, I'm delighted by that. I'm thrilled by that. I love the Word of God. That's why I became a pastor and a preacher. It's because God, I, mean, I, just, I just totally identify with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Just burned in my heart. I, I couldn't do anything else. I would be miserable. I would be out, you know, preaching to the trees or to the grass or to the... I'd have to preach to something. My wife couldn't live with me. And so I, I love it. I have to preach it. I have to share it. It, it, it ought to burn within us. I, I think about Jeremiah. He got so discouraged. Nobody would listen. They kept persecuting him. And, and he just kind of threw in the towel and he just couldn't do it. The Lord threw the towel back at him. He said, the word was like a fire shut up in my bones. He said, I couldn't help but speak it. I love the Word of God. There is, there is nothing better than this message. I'm delighted by it. Where would we be without the Word of God that reveals Christ and His great salvation to us? There is nothing better than that. If that doesn't satisfy your soul, listen, if Jesus Christ and the message of redemption doesn't thrill your soul, if it doesn't satisfy you, I can promise you that nothing else will. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night.